What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Happy Friday to you. Outkick the Culture podcast back on the air. I'm Jason Martin, your host. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at jmartoutkick, O-U-T-K-I-C-K. You can also read my work at outkick.com, or you can email me whatever you'd like to jmartclone at gmail.com. So... You know, I had thoughts that we were going to talk about a variety of different things today. And I'm not necessarily sure that we won't, but I have a feeling that this conversation is going to go for a while. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, quite frankly, because something came out last Friday and it was one of the few things Netflix didn't screen early. They didn't give this out to critics early, even though I had requested it a couple of weeks in advance. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily sure why that was, considering it was a new property. But I think it probably had a lot to do with some of the people involved behind the scenes and kind of how controlling they are about their properties. But I think that to talk about this show, you have to talk about the background of the influences behind the show, as well as the other pieces of pop culture that have come out through the years that borrow heavily from the work of the real life people, particularly one guy, behind the entire series. Also, from the very beginning of this podcast, there's always a Q&A element where you can send me an email, you can send me a direct message. I'm open on Twitter, so you can direct message me even if you even if I don't follow you. You know, you can basically send me whatever you want, and if it's a good question, I'll bring it up on the show and we'll talk about it. Sometimes if you just send me an email and it's a question I can answer pretty quickly, I might do that. And then even, you know, sometimes I'll mention it. But one of the first questions that I got asked and I continued to kind of kick this can down the road for a while, was a comparison of two directors. And I think now is the time to answer that question. Not right this second, but I think it's going to come up during this discussion because one of those two directors is heavily associated with the show that this podcast is generally going to be focused on. The show is Mindhunter. On the surface, it's about serial killers, but generally it's about the procedures that have led to criminal profiling and particular profiling in heavily violent serialized murders. And if that sounds sort of familiar to you, it should, because people are fascinated by this kind of topic. It's why Dateline and 48 Hours and all that. I mean, people care about murders. You don't generally get the serial killer stories on those shows. You get the the husband was upset about this love triangle that was emerging around him, so he murdered his wife kind of stories, or vice versa, or poisonings and things like that. But occasionally you'll get a... This guy's been killing three or four different people, and they figured out finally that it was the same person, even though there were a little bit of different MOs and things like that. Now, I'm not a professional in this realm, and there are so many other crime podcasts out there that trying to go into too much detail about any given crime or any given criminal is going to be a fallacy on my part. I'm a pop culture person first, as much as I enjoy true crime. Who doesn't? Serial top the podcast charts for I don't know whatever for for I don't know however and I don't think that there was any surprise that the second season wasn't received as well as the first because the second season quite frankly just didn't have the meat in it and also didn't have the personalization that we got in the first season when Koenig was obviously dealing with Adnan and all the various people surrounding the death of Hay. Making a Murderer was an absolute phenomenon on Netflix when it came out around Christmas two years ago and anything like it that has sprung up, and we've seen different versions of this, the Jinx, the Robert Durr story that uh, Andrew Jarecki put out on HBO, which I'm not sure when he started he was going to get what he got at the end, where he basically got a confession in a crime or in a series of crimes, I guess you would can say, that people assumed Robert Durst had committed but could never actually nail him down on. And it was actually the Robert Durst case that kind of made Janine Pirro's name, for better or for worse. But Jarecki's work was very different to what we got in Making a Murderer, where there was an inherent bias behind what was going on. I've said before, Stephen Avery is guilty. I don't necessarily believe that the accomplice was 
treated fairly, and I do believe that based on everything that went down, he deserved a second trial. I'm not sure he was even capable of understanding what was going on, not just at the time he was being interrogated the way he was and led to what he ended up saying, but also even if he was with Stephen Avery at the time, everything was going down. But I think that all of this kind of began because of the fascination with these mass killings. You can't go too far down the rabbit hole of a mass shooting. It's like, we will find out what Jared Lee Loeffner did, or we will find out what, you know, what happened in Vegas or what happened in Colorado. And certainly what happened at Columbine is something that was well discussed, and there were several films that came out about it. But once you get the motivation behind those, you generally get to the point of, well, these people were crazy. These people believed this or believed that, or they just snapped. You know, Timothy McVeigh and all of his beliefs and all those kinds of things. It's different. You know, and there have been movies through the years that have tried to sort of quantify those kinds of situations as well. Arlington Road stands out with Jeff Bridges and Tim Robbins, which actually, you know, I don't know what the critical consensus on Arlington Road is, is, but I remember when it came out. I went and saw it with a friend of mine at the theater back when I was living in North Carolina, and it just totally transfixed me and I think it was because there was a mystery element to things that felt like they were actually happening or could actually happening and this of course was before 9-11 and when things kind of changed in terms of paranoia and chained in terms of conspiracy theories and all of that I think it hit at the right time but if you want to go to serial killers you know there are people that romanticized Charles Manson even those that would romanticize John Dillinger or some of you know the, the criminals of the past. And movies did a very good job of painting this life where gangsters were kind of cool. The antihero may have sprung up as a result of that kind of thing. In The Untouchables, you finally got a Capone that was hard to like and an Elliot Ness that you really did like. And it's one of the reasons I would suggest that The Untouchables was as, I don't know, the reason it lasts so much. But I mean... Who do you remember deeply in Scarface on the good side of that equation? You know, some will say, you know, Scarface is no Godfather. These these are completely different films. They are. But if you really think about the police in Scarface, you really don't think of anything, right? You think of Pacino and Say Hello to My Little Friend and mountains of cocaine and white suits and mansions and a lot of blood. But you think of Tony Montana, just like you think of Tony Soprano. You don't think of any of the police that were going after him. You think of him and his family, and you think of Paulie, and you think of Silvio, and you think of that crew. It's easier to make a compelling figure out of someone evil than it is someone good, I think. Walter White, Tony Soprano, like I just said, Frank Underwood, Claire Underwood as well, if you want to stay there. The drug dealers on the corners in The Wire, Stringer Bell, Avon Barksdale, Bodie, All of those folks. Now you're watching The Deuce on HBO. And who are the people that you're really interested in, what they're doing? I mean, Vinny Martino is not necessarily a pure villain, but he's a front for the mob. And now he's involved in some version of prostitution with this massage parlor that we saw open up this past week, along with Bobby Dwyer. But you look at Candy, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. She's a prostitute. She's trying to find her way off the streets, but she's trying to do that in front of a porn camera and behind a porn camera. Antiheroes are easier to display and create interest in an audience because I believe, and this is, this is not me profiling as we're about to get back to the Mindhunter show itself, but I think it's easier to depict evil today because people are drawn to things worse than them because it makes them feel better about themselves. It's like if you read 700 pages on Richard Rader, the BTK killer, for example, which I think is very apropos as we get into this Mindhunter discussion. You can say, God, how could he possibly do something like that? And you're fascinated by what would lead to it. And we're drawn to the macabre in a lot of cases as well. But it's easier to read about the BTK killer because then all of a sudden... Those things that nag at you in the back of your head about your own personality, the things that you kind of don't want to talk about at parties, and I'm not saying dark, dark things. I'm not saying everybody out there listening is bad, but we're all sinful people. We're all people that are 
hopefully fighting to be more righteous every day and looking to the right things to take the right walks. But I think it's addictive to hear and see indications of what real evil looks like because it even makes our transgressions easier to deal with. At least that's my philosophy on it. That's my thesis, if you will. Which brings us to Mindhunter. Mindhunter, David Fincher, Charlize Theron, two big names to be behind this project. Not just them, obviously. But it was based on John Edward Douglas, who was a former special agent, worked in the FBI, one of the first ever criminal profilers. John Douglas is widely regarded as the guy that really brought criminal profiling mainstream. After joining the FBI in 1970, he was a sniper at one point with a SWAT team. Then he transferred to what was known as the BSU, which is the Behavioral uh, Behavioral Sciences Unit. Now, I read BSU and I immediately thought BAU because Criminal Minds, CBS's show, which looks like it's just never going to end, is all about criminal profiling of violent criminals, sometimes potential serial killers, and a few times actual serial killers. The BSU and the BAU are pretty close together, and Criminal Minds was inspired by John Douglas. In fact, the lead characters played by Mandy Patinkin, his character Jason Gideon, and David Rossi, the character played by Joe Montana, were both based on John Douglas. In 2015, according to Wikipedia, the creators of Criminal Minds actually confirmed that they were based on John Douglas. John Douglas, at least in the show, and certainly it's basically true, serial killer as a term is something that came around because of the work that this group was doing, in which they went and talked to some of the most violent, convicted felons, went to prisons, went to facilities, sat down with them and tried to pick their brains to find out the causes so that they could then transfer that information to come up with classifications that would make it hopefully easier to stop crimes before they happened, cut them off at the pass, or at least showcase warning signs that people could use to protect themselves, or at least stop these crimes, maybe three murders instead of 25, for example. So there's no John Douglas in the show. But there is a John Douglas in the show. They don't call him John Douglas. And by the way, John Douglas wrote the book, well, co-wrote the book that Mindhunter was based on. And the book itself was indeed also called Mindhunter. More specifically, Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. And Douglas co-wrote it with Mark Olshaker. Jonathan Groff, who you probably don't know a whole lot about in terms of his acting, plays Holden Ford. And Holden Ford is John Douglas based on John Douglas, and pretty much acts like John Douglas. Jonathan Groff, nominated for a Tony Award, was in Hamilton as well as King George III. You may have seen the show Boss on Stars, which starred Kelsey Grammer. Actually, a really good show, but it was on Stars before anybody took Stars seriously. You know, I'm not necessarily saying they do now, but there is a fairly big audience out there for Outlander. I think Black Sails really started to catch hold, and there have been some good shows. Power's been pretty popular. Certainly, The Girlfriend Experience was an awfully good show. But he was on Boss, and he also played Patrick Murray in Looking on HBO, which, of course, was canceled after a couple of years, but was incredibly critically acclaimed, certainly. And John Groff is now Holden Ford. And regardless of anything that he's done up to this point, this is what people are going to know him for. Because this is the first thing that he's done, I think, that's going to have the kind of appeal on a mainstream level as a show that's going to last. Mindhunter is a series that I don't know how many people cared about before it came out. Certainly, big-time true crime enthusiasts knew about it. I think David Fincher fans knew about it as well. I think that might have been one of the initial draws to House of Cards along with that cast. This cast is nowhere near as star-studded just in terms of the people in it being household names. But if you're familiar with television, you've seen some of these folks before. Holt McElhaney, probably chief among them. Holt McElhaney was on an FX show called Lights Out. Show did not make it, made it one season. It was about a, a boxer that was dealing with concussion symptoms 
and you know also had issues just in his own life both both personal and professional money issues potentially crime issues and Holt McElhaney was a star of that show and he was excellent his performance was spectacular as a matter of fact Reggie Cathy was on that show who you may know from House of Cards there were some other talented folks Pablo Schreiber was on that show it wasn't a great show, Stacey Keach as well. It was it was not a great show, but it, it had a lot of good performances, and sometimes that was enough. Like, I watched it from start to finish. The wife on the show was probably the most irritating part of it and may have wrecked it. The family life was the issue with it. When it was focused on boxing and when it was focused on other things, I think it worked out much better. But Holt McElhaney was very good. Holt McElhaney is also somebody that in his career has played a lot of villains, even in bit roles. I remember an episode of Monk where he stole three pies because of another situation and was willing to kill for them. So when I first saw him, it didn't even strike. It took me a second. I'm like, oh, that's Holt McElhaney. Well, Holt McElhaney plays John Tench, who is the partner of Holden Ford, somebody that had been around a little bit more and had already been working in the behavioral sciences area, whereas Ford was more of just a straight FBI agent at the time that became more interested in these kinds of crimes and about prediction and about trying to learn the underlying causes behind this stuff. So John Douglas himself, as part of the study, sat down with some of by far the most notorious criminals in history. And what's very fascinating, and I think good for Mindhunter, is that even though we met some very cool folks in terms of villains, it's tough to say cool about serial killers, but names. Names matter. Names have glitz. We didn't see Manson this year. We didn't see David Berkowitz himself this year. We didn't see Ted Bundy this year. There are a lot of folks that we still have not seen. Haven't seen John Wayne Gacy either. But we have seen some pretty nice hitters. We've seen Richard Speck. We have seen Jerry Brudos. And we've seen a few others. And we've obviously seen through the beginnings of many of these episodes. I don't want to spoil this for those that didn't realize what they were seeing. You know, at the beginning of all these episodes, and I assume if you're listening to this at this stage, you've watched some of Mindhunter at the very least. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but it's not really an ending anyway. It's just sort of, those are your 10 episodes for now. This show will be back because a lot of folks are talking about it. And it's not a perfect show by any means, but it is very good and extremely addicting. And I've recommended it to a lot of folks over the last uh, two weeks or so. But what we're seeing is Richard Rader. I think everybody probably knows that just because they keep showing Kansas every single time we see his scenes at the beginning of these episodes, but we're seeing the BTK killer. That's who this dude with the facial hair is that's walking around pretending to work for ADT and, and all of these things, or working for ADT and pretending to uh, be helping these folks when he's actually helping case the stuff. We're seeing the BTK killer. So, you know, that's something to look forward to later on. But I think that the probably the star of this show, look, I, I think that Jonathan Groff is good. I think Holt McElhaney is excellent. I think Anna Torv, who you know I've been in love with since Fringe, I love the Olivia, the Olivia Dunham character. I think that Fringe is one of the most criminally underappreciated series, one of the most daring series we have seen this century, certainly on television. Very similar, in my opinion, to Person of Interest in terms of how many people did not pay attention to it and how good it actually was. Fringe is absolutely a show sci-fi fans should watch, people that like emotional dramas should watch, But it is definitely a mind screw. There is no question about that. But I greatly enjoyed it, and I thought it had a perfect finale, just like Person of Interest did. But Anna Torv was the lead in that show, along with Joshua Jackson and John Noble. And I hadn't seen much of Anna Torv since since Fringe, and I was hoping that that would change. And then all of a sudden, we finally have Anna Torv back as Dr. Wendy Carr. Mindhunter could not have worked without those three characters being very good, and they all were very good. But if I had to pick one person that stands out about Mindhunter as an acting performance, as well as just somebody that makes everything compelling and sort of brings a foundation behind all of what John Douglas is doing, even with all the histrionics and the Eight ripe bleeps. That's a word that I will never use. I think it's the ugliest word in this language with the exception of the N-word, certainly. But Edmund Kemper, played by Cameron Britton, to me is what makes Mindhunter as good as Mindhunter is. 
Because there are a lot of times when you're watching Holden Ford where it's just very difficult to discern whether or not he's trying to prevent crime or if he's now obsessed by it. And I think that there's a fine line between those two things. And I think Groff does a good job of portraying a guy that's starting to lose it a little bit and become so obsessed with this world that he's starting to become unable to function in any other capacity. It's what cost him his girlfriend. It's what cost him some of his standing at his job. He's now sort of a loose cannon, somebody that you can't trust. And I think it's because he had conversations with guys like Edmund Kemper or Richard Speck or Jerry Brudos. These kind of names and sitting down with these people and trying to pick their brains, at the same time, what they're saying is going into you. You are what you ingest. It's why a lot of times if you're watching heavy stuff, you might decide to decompress by listening to some light music or go into some kind of comedy or something like that where you can laugh. Mindhunter is not something I would propose you watch right before bed. Not because you're going to be scared, but because your thoughts as you're dreaming could be adversely affected. I would watch Mindhunter... I would watch a, you know, I, I binged it pretty quickly because I really wanted to talk about it now while it's sort of the talk of the town, so to speak. But, you know, I'd binge three or four episodes and I'd feel, you know, pretty down, quite frankly. It's a dark show. It's why David Fincher was perfect to direct it and why he attached himself to the project. By the way, something interesting about Jonathan Groff. Jonathan Groff actually tried to work for David Fincher back in 2008, 2009 because he auditioned for the social network to play Sean Parker, the founder of Netflix and the guy that uh, Justin Timberlake played in that movie. Didn't end up getting the role, was a huge Fincher fan, but later on, here he is, attached to Mindhunter. That's sometimes how it works. But what we saw as the series sort of progressed in these 10 episodes is a Holden Ford that became less and less interested in the actual world and was much more interested in trying to fit these puzzle pieces together and get to some kind of conclusion. And I think his obsession then took him over the top to make some mistakes, at least for the time. One thing I found super weird about this is when Holden Ford sat down with Richard Speck and he went that place with Richard Speck to draw out that information. And everybody was up in arms back at the FBI. His supervisor, up in arms. Dr. Carr, up in arms. Even his partner, Bill Tench, up in arms. This is morally repugnant. This is wrong. And Richard Speck following that complaint, mentioning Holden specifically and saying that he mind bleeped him. And? I mean, I guess maybe you could say that there's something wrong with that, but I never saw it that way. It's hard for me to believe that sitting down and doing whatever you can to break down the walls and the manipulation that exists across that table when you're staring into the face of evil is wrong. So when Holden went there, I thought, ah, that's brilliant. And I think at the time, it may not have been seen that way. If you read about John Douglas, John Douglas was incredibly controversial until they realized he was right and that this was kind of the only way that you could really get in with some of these folks. And I think because we live in 2017 and we're seeing this story told now and we've seen Criminal Minds and we've seen Silence of the Lambs, which, by the way, another, sh- another movie that was inspired by some of the men that John Douglas interviewed, including Kemper and Brutos, who we see here in Mindhunter. It was hard, though. It was hard for me to look at what Holden Ford was doing and think, well, that's wrong. It's like it's a little uncomfortable, but he was lying to get somewhere. He was, as his girlfriend said, playing a role. And the other person didn't know that there was actually a play going on. But it got them to the answers. What happened to the 12-year-old in Atlanta, in Georgia? He figured it out with that very unseemly kind of back and forth about the majorette uniform. How do you talk to evil? What's the right way to talk to evil? The wrong way, I would suggest is to look at a questionnaire and just go top to bottom on that thing. If you don't get anything, you don't get anything. You've got to find a way. Now, you can't draw out false information. You have to be able to discern that. 
But in the case of Edmund Kemper, as we saw him sit down in numerous episodes of Mindhunter and talk to, at first, just Holden Ford, but later both Ford and Tench, was that he was screwing with them. Even, you know, fellow inmates and other people that they would talk to later on saying he's messing with you guys. Did you believe everything he said? Why would you think that evil would tell you the truth? Evil wants to spin a good story. We all like good stories. One of the reasons I had a problem, you know, last week I talked about faith on this show and about how important it's become to me in my life. One of the things that I have tried to rid myself of is the unnecessary lie. And I was notorious for this for a long, long time. Notorious in my own head because most people never even knew. It's the lie of exaggeration. It's I want this story to be a little bit better, so I'm going to keep telling some stuff. And I'm not even going to know what's coming out of my mouth, but a lot of this stuff is just not quite accurate. It's close, but I'm trying to make this a little bit more entertaining. I'm spicing this up for you. And that's me. And I think I'm an all right dude. Imperfect, certainly, but trying to do better. But look at a guy like Edmund Kemper, somebody whose mind and the way he believed and his upbringing and all of the things that had contributed to him becoming what he became... Why would he tell you the truth? So as you watched Mindhunter, and certainly as I watched Mindhunter, I could never escape the feeling that I didn't think what Holden Ford was doing was wrong in his own context and in the what he was trying to do, what he was trying to accomplish. I felt like he was going about it in a very positive way. But it works for the show because it creates conflict, first of all, and conflict is our friend on television. And it displays John Douglas's controversy early, And then later, when it was accepted, how brilliant he actually was. But the actual sit-downs themselves on this show were spectacularly done. The Edmund Kemper stuff in particular. Cameron Britton. Here we go. That is an amazing performance, folks. That is not an easy role to play. And really, you know, we meet the Ed Kemper. If you look up photos of Ed Kemper online... He wasn't like corpulently overweight all his life, but he became a 300-pound guy when he was in prison. Always super tall, monstrous, but not like, you know, 300, 320 pounds throughout his life. You see his face, it was thinner than the Ed Kemper, than the Cam Britton that we meet in this show. And Cameron Britton is a guy you've probably never seen unless you've watched Sliders. He was in like one episode of Battle Creek and a couple of other things. But Cameron Britton is, is relatively unknown. This Ed Kemper performance... There's a lot of great TV on, folks. But if this guy does not get real love towards a nomination for supporting work for what he's done in Mindhunter, we just need to go ahead and take that award, scrap it completely. Because this was spectacular stuff. The drama, the dialogue, the writing, the back and forth, the direction, all of it. Pitch perfect from start to finish, even down the stretch in that final episode in that hospital scene. Where you see, the thing about Cameron Britton's performance and the thing about Ed Kemper is that Ed Kemper was charming despite being cold and distant. He would laugh with you and joke with you, but when it was time, he would look with empty eyes straight through your skull and tell you some of the most vile stuff on earth. Because he was damaged. Because he was gone. And there in that final sequence of that final episode, when it's just those two guys in that hospital room, You see both. You see how he draws you in, and then you see some of the most terrifying stuff on earth. And historically, a lot of serial killers were able to possess both. Ted Bundy, of course, one of those examples. But the Ed Kemper character is when Mindhunter really took off for me. I was certainly intrigued by the premise because, just like you, serial killers are fascinating. But in general... Until I met Edmund Kemper and watched Cam Britton working with Jonathan Groff on screen, it did not fully register how deep this show could be and how good that it could be. And then you went from Ed Kemper to Speck and to Brudos and to some of these other things, but it was Kemper that was the foundation of the entire show. Ed Kemper is Mindhunter. Because of the Ed Kemper character that we meet early, the one that we continue to speak to in the middle of the season, and then the one that we encounter in the finale— That 
plus protagonists that were damaged that you could get behind made me care about this show. Now, there were things about this show that I did not love. I don't necessarily care about Wendy Carr and the cat in the laundry room. I mean, that's nice and all, but we haven't even seen the cat. I guess it's just showing that she's an actual person instead of the robot that she seems to be presented as most of the time when she's at work. Bill Tench and his family life, that makes a little bit more sense because it shows the relationship with him and Ford in terms of their friendship and how both of them have issues and that they're both better because of the other. Sometimes Ford is going to go over the top and Tench is going to bring him back down to reality and sometimes Tench is going to be too rigid and Ford is going to pull him in the direction that they're going to get results. Those two guys are perfect playing off each other and I think Groff and McElhaney do a are excellent casting choices because Groff can play this really straight arrowed but sometimes semi-terrifying character and Bill Tench is just this old dude that's too old for this bleep. And both performances are extremely good. I don't do this a lot, but uh, Jonathan Groff actually sat down a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, at a Build conference up in New York, and he talked about the series. Here he is kind of talking about his character and the way he plays John Douglas, and I think John Douglas would agree, and he's done some interviews saying you know, a lot of the ways that he's been portrayed and the way that Groff kind of takes on the character there are definitely similarities to the man himself. Listen to Groff talking about Douglas and certainly talking about Holden Ford in relation to Mindhunter. Let's talk about what you're doing with your character because I, you're doing interesting things with your character that sometimes aren't even really talked about. Like you physically present him in a, in a fascinating way. He seems to be uncomfortable with himself and uncomfortable with his body, but is constantly trying to present himself as sort of like upstanding yeah. and not those things. Yeah, it's interesting. He's sort of a... A lot of contradictions because he's sort of and initially when you meet him presents as kind of like the perfect boy scout but then he has this sort of revelatory and revolutionary idea about talking to incarcerated uh, murderers and gets a kind of obsessed and interested by them and he also at the same time with his girlfriend is having a sexual awakening in his personal life while talking to psychosexual killers one on one and so it's a it's a very complex complicated mixed bag and it was one of the things that drew me to the character initially was how he starts in season 1 and how he ends in season 1 there's a big sort of like uh, subtle and yet giant kind of evolution of his character so there it is. It was a tough guy. It was a tough situation. It, was, it wasn't going to be the easiest character to play simply because there was an evolution, and he saw that in the script. And I think that it's hard to imagine you're sitting down with the likes of Ed Kemper and some of these folks, Ted Bundy, who I, I'll be curious to see if they, how they approach that if they do at all because he was already well into the stuff that he was doing, may have actually been caught maybe by the time that we actually meet these characters on Mindhunter. But he hasn't been discussed at all, which leads me to believe they're going to find a way to tell that story one way or the other. I've mentioned a lot about John Douglas, obviously, but Bill Tench, Holt McElhaney's character, is also based on a real guy, Robert K. Russler. And Robert Russler is the guy that most people credit with the term serial killer, with coining that term. You see the term begin to be coined, or actually, I guess, become coined late in the first season of Mindhunter, and it wasn't necessarily Tench that did it it's kind of given more to Ford but it's sort of organically created in that room between the three of them and although it's not nearly as close the Dr. Wendy Carr character represents Ann W. Burgess in real life the three of them Douglas, Wrestler, and Burgess wrote a book on serial killers serial offenders called Sexual Homicide Patterns and Motives and that is kind of what we're seeing here and there's a reason I mentioned that portion of it because it kind of reminds me as the way this show is done, of the early stages of Masters of Sex on Showtime, which of course was focused on a completely different discipline, but was also psychological in nature, I think this show is going to end up being one that has lasting staying power. Now, Masters of Sex has, you know, went on for quite some time, still does, but most people tuned out midway through the second season. I think it came back and had a good fourth year. Third year was not particularly good. The acting was strong, and it had some fairly big names in it. But I think Mindhunter's got more to it, not because we're not 
we're drawn to serial killers more than we are sex, but I just think that the way this show is being laid out, it's in no hurry. There are a lot of long stretches of dialogue in this show, which fits with David Fincher. And this show, in a lot of ways, fits with David Fincher because although he is, you know, a blockbuster director, a lot of his best stuff have been one-on-one dialogue sequences filled with other things sometimes, but also just two guys in a room staring at each other and talking something pretty tough out. He's done a serial killer film before. He's done two, as a matter of fact. He did seven. That was kind of his first one that hit hard. I mean, he did Alien 3, but we don't have to talk about Alien 3. He didn't really have too much control over that. But then after seven, he came and did Zodiac, which was about a real-life serial killer, obviously, and one that did not get caught. And I think the Zodiac film is the best example of if you watch Mindhunter and you watch the episodes in particular that David Fincher directed and did not know Fincher's name was attached to it, you could still assume, or if you found out it was Fincher, you'd say, well, of course it was Fincher. Because it has all the hallmarks of a David Fincher show. Not as much shadowing on the faces, but that's because these people don't need to be obscured because we already know who they are. If you go back to Zodiac, in particular, the first death in Zodiac, the car scene, there's a lot of shadowing being used to try and obscure things because David Fincher enjoys mystery in his films. He always has, whether it was Seven and what they did with Spacey's face a lot of the time where you didn't see it until the end. On to Zodiac. Even in Panic Room, the darkness that's employed in in that movie as well. The Game, the Michael Douglas film that, that I really enjoyed but didn't do all that well at the box office. You haven't seen The Game, you should, especially if you like to have your mind played with. But that's what Fincher does. And if you want to get into this discussion quickly about Fincher versus Nolan, Nolan doesn't obscure faces. Nolan puts kind of a vintage, almost a shadowy polish on his stuff that almost makes it look grainy. And Fincher is incredibly intricate with the way he shoots things. Known for his long tracking shots, particularly the fight club scene where you see Ed Norton looking at the window of that apartment or that kind of that large high rise and you see it scroll all the way down. He loves using a dolly. That's David Fincher. He likes these long scenes. He likes a lot of dialogue. He likes it to be quick as well. And you get both of those things. You get all of those things inside of Mindhunter. He also uses a certain color palette. He is known for his dark blacks and his grays. He's great in storms. Stuff looks really good in storms. You know it's Fincher when it's in a storm or it looks like it's a storm even without rain because his stuff is so dark generally. But he also takes a secondary color, and the secondary color usually takes on the theme of what he's doing. If you go to Zodiac, I've read this in numerous places, if you go back and watch Zodiac, Zodiac is all about its blacks and it's all about its yellows. The blacks representing the night where nothing is safe and where the Zodiac does most of his work, and then the yellow where you're supposed to feel safe because the sun is shining, but even the yellow makes you a little bit uncomfortable because it's just a little off. It's not a natural light in any room. Go watch Mindhunter and see how many of those yellows you can point out, where there's a tint almost like you've put some kind of filter from your phone on a photograph, and it's added almost a little bit of a brass tinge to what you're seeing. I think it's the same, or it's very, very similar in employment, and it stands out. Nolan doesn't do that. Nolan usually goes with very, he goes with dark colors, but he goes with more of a, it's not flashy at all. It's very drab. He's also at home in storms, but think about Dunkirk and think about Inception and think about the colors that are used in those films. Mindhunter and Fincher will use some very colorful stuff and then a lot of browns and blacks and grays. Fight Club's another example. Fight Club used a blue color along with the black. Why did you do that? If you read, it's because black and blue represents what happens when you fight. And it just gives you this feeling that you're constantly in a war while you're watching this film. Obviously, black and blue in other things that he's done as well, but black and kind of almost frostbitten blue in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of Fincher in what Mindhunter is doing. But Mindhunter is working on so many levels because it's willing to slow the heck down. We don't need 14 serial killers in the first season of Mindhunter. We really only need two or three. And if we had just gotten Kemper the whole time, I'd have been fine. We could have sat there for 10 hours and just watched, you know, Holt McElhaney and Jonathan Groff 
and Cam Britton just sit there and talk for 10 hours. I'd have watched it. Fascinated by it. I sat there and watched that Iceman thing just like all of you did years ago. But there's so many more places we can go and so many more killers that we're going to be able to meet as this show continues. But as you heard in that uh, brief cut from Jonathan Groff, the Holden Ford character evolves and almost devolves and devolves into a place where we see at the end of the episode what's basically happened to him. You can't talk to evil without evil infecting who you are. And just the idea that the character talking to sexual deviants while in a sexual relationship, you remember the scene with his girlfriend where she puts on the lingerie for him and comes in and every red-blooded male that's watching that's like, wow, good stuff holding forward. And he can't even handle it because it's not her and because it reminds him, even the heels remind him of what happened with Jerry Brudos. Everything, like, you can't sit there and listen to Ed Kemper talk about the things Ed Kemper talks about and then just go home and eat cream of wheat. Like, it doesn't work that way. It's why there are a lot of critics. You know, I read one critic that said she's never been able to watch The Silence of the Lambs, never watched Red Dragon, never watched Hannibal, uh, couldn't, couldn't even take the early episodes of Criminal Minds. There are people that just can't handle it. Not because it's going to make them evil, but because it's hard to go back to normalcy after you envelop yourselves in that and then there are some people that can't get enough true crime and will watch and listen to it all the time and it won't affect them at all me i'm kind of somewhere in the middle i really love true crime but i do need decompression from time to time i kept calling her denise my apologies i meant to say debbie and she's good too by the way hannah gross that character gets a little bit annoying down the stretch and i think it's supposed to because you're supposed to want ford you're supposed to like ford you're not necessarily supposed to identify too much with debbie she does some things are a little bit you know you could see why ford would have a little bit of an issue with some of the things that are going on and then the two of them just kind of magically grow apart i didn't necessarily sense tremendous chemistry between the two actors like groff and gross i didn't necessarily see them together it just you know sometimes chemistry works better than others but also i don't think ford is supposed to have long-lasting chemistry with debbie midford because well, that's not ultimately the point of the show. And Ford is becoming more detached from normal life. Everything he does, he's still thinking in terms of this profiling and all of the things that go around that. But as a whole, the Mindhunter show is working on a big level. I have more people sending me messages asking me if I've seen it. And yes, I have. I haven't written on it yet, but I'm going to do that. It may actually happen today. So by the time you actually listen to this, it may actually already be at outkick.com. Because I have completed the first season and now I full, you know, now I feel pretty comfortable in going out there and doing it. But another thing Mindhunter does well before we finish up is that it does not sanitize this content. We don't see too many of the crimes. We really don't see any of the crimes because we don't need to. Fincher does throw those photographs out in front of us, though. But it's more the dialogue that's just so difficult to take. And it's presented in a matter-of-fact way because it needs to be. Because these serial killers, even if they feel remorse, and most of them, I don't know. Because you never know when when you hear that one does, whether or not he does, or whether or not that's easier for the parole board. But generally, they're deranged. Something's happened in their background that they weren't able to get past, or something triggered them, or whatever it was. But... The reason they were able to commit a lot of these crimes is because there was nothing to stop them. There was that absence of conscience, and you see that, and you can feel that palpably through the screen during the Kemper interview, even during the Speck interview, during the Brudos interview, during all of these various things that are going on, you can sense the lack of humanity and the lack of empathy in these people. BTK and how he operates and just all of the things that happen in his private life, that very odd scene we see in his apartment, that one scene or his house in the kitchen. But everything else he's done is very measured. But even when he's talking to people normally, it's hard for us because we know who the BTK killer is and we know what's happened and we know the story. It's hard for us to sit there and look at him and say, well, how did people not see that coming? Or Because the guy on the screen looks awfully creepy. Which is true, and I think that it's designed to be that way because we already know who he is. But I wonder if we would still recognize the twist if it wasn't on TV, if we did not know who this was. Obviously, because he's being presented at the beginning of all these episodes, it's almost like Mindhunter is taking us to a place where we can actually find out who the BTK killer is and stop him. 
which isn't necessarily how that went down. And it certainly didn't go down that way for a while. And he took his share of victims before the fact. But although it's imperfect and, you know, the the thing with the tickling of the feet and the principle, that story, we may have spent a little bit more time on that than we needed to. But I will credit Mindhunter here. These are not 10 60-minute episodes. There's one of, the, one of them that's 38 and one that's 42 and one that's 45. There are some that are 57 and 58. But because you're on Netflix, you don't have to fill 60 minutes per episode. You can do the same thing American Vandal did where the fi- finale was 42 minutes, but you had some that were 27 and then you had a few that were 34. It's just that part of the story, what makes sense for a starting and ending point. And the 38-minute episode, when it popped up and I saw that show up on the screen that this was a 38-minute episode, I was just like, wow, all right, that's good, because this slice of this story is self-contained within this 38 minutes. Yes, we could fill the time, or we could take 22 minutes from the next episode and finish, but there's no need to do that, because this is Netflix and there's no rules here. There's no commercials here. There's nothing here. Let's tell the story we need to tell, and in each slice, let's make sure that this chapter has a good beginning and a good ending, because we don't know whether or not this person's going to watch this episode and move to the next one immediately, or if they're going to watch this episode and then three days later get back to the series. So we don't need to go too far here. Let's tell something that has a definitive start and a definitive finish. And a lot of folks can learn from this because there are still folks on Netflix that create good properties that decide they want these episodes to go so long because of an artificial construct that doesn't exist. That's the beauty of Netflix is you can do whatever you want. And credit to Mindhunter, and credit to Penhall, Joe Penhall, the creator of the series itself, and credit to Fincher, and all of the folks that are associated with this program for recognizing their independence and not overdoing every episode. When I got to the end of the 10th episode of Mindhunter, I had the feeling that every one of those folks wanted me to have, which was, I want more of this. And we're going to get it. There's no question in my mind that we're going to get it. I bet you we will know it's renewed very, very quickly. Is it the best show of the year? No. Is it a top 10 show? It might be. There are definitely performances in it that should be termed that way. As an idea and the way that it's executed, I think it's special. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, I'm not a profiling expert and I'm not going to go in deep on all of those things or many podcasts are going to be able to do that better but Fincher's perfect for this project and he's done an excellent job with it Penhall has done an excellent job the writing has been very solid the Holden character began to bother me because it became so eccentric towards the end it's like man this guy's losing his mind but if you stop and realize what John Douglas and what these people were doing Robert Russell and all these folks were doing it's hard not to seep into your life there's the scenes where Bill Tench is pulling back, and I don't want to hear this anymore. I'm not going to go back. I can't deal with this anymore. Who among us can blame Bill Tench for that reaction? There is a realism behind this, and at no point does it feel glorified. There have been serial killer stories told where the villains have been heroes. That's not the case here. The villains are stars, but they're not heroes in any way. Cameron Britton's performance as Ed Kemper makes this show. And I think Groff and McElhinney play off each other well. I think that Hannah Gross is very good as Debbie Mitford. And the fact that there is a difference between her character and Holden Ford makes all the sense in the world considering the unique challenges of their relationship. And Anna Torb is very good as Wendy Carr. She plays almost unfeeling, pretty doggone well. There are times when Olivia is really by the book on Fringe. Wendy Carr very by the book. But those three, when they're together, when you've got Torv and McElhaney and Groff all together, you've got really good stuff. If I had to classify myself as one character or another on this show, and I, you know, I saw Joanne Robinson of Vanity Fair say, are you a Bill or are you a Holden? I think I'm probably a little bit more of a Bill, but there are times when I'm a little bit more of a Holden. I don't know how often I'm a Wendy Carr, but that wasn't mentioned as part of the criteria or one of the choices. But Mindhunter's good, folks. That's the point here. You know, like I said, I wanted to talk about Robot and This Is Us and go into a bunch of different things. And some good music came out last week and this week that I wanted to discuss. I told you the Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile album was going to be good. It's my favorite album of the year after I got to hear it. 
there's a lot of really good music out. Margaret Price's album came out today. Beck's new album came out last week as well. There's just a lot of good stuff out there. Movies, maybe not quite as good, but there's some solid stuff out there for you to see. Some things I need to see as well. Stranger Things releases next week. Hopefully I will have seen it all by the time it releases. Hopefully I will have a review up in advance of the season beginning. They're being kind of tight on the screener situation right now and delaying things. So it's possible that doesn't happen and I end up binging it at the same time everybody else does. But hopefully that won't be the case. But Mindhunter, if you haven't seen it, obviously you need to go out of your way to see it. It is a show that if it had come before Silence of the Lambs or before Criminal Minds, it would have blown everybody's mind because no one has seen anything like it. We have seen plenty of this kind of thing since. The criminal profiling thing works because we're all so drawn and fascinated by the causes and how you can see this coming and the apprehension of these super villain criminals, these serial killers, that this show, I can't imagine when we're going to see the moment where we're bored by this. There was a time early in Mindhunter where I'm just like, where is this going? Then you get to the end, it's like, well, you know where it's going going to now there's still there are still serial killers now we do understand the pathology better at this point we understand the psychopathy better at this point the work of john douglas and john douglas who also wrote and, and worked on the west memphis three case which is the case that really brought me back into caring deeply about true crime and things of that nature i was so fascinated if you want to go back to the beginning of the craze you know i was talking about celebrity and charles manson and folks like that but before the jinx before serial before making a murder there were the paradise lost documentary films about the west memphis three i've seen them all i don't know how many times i you know metallica all through those things and how much of course they liked metal music and just that case and the way it played out and the the other folks that seemed not to even be focused on at all by law enforcement, it's like the, it was these three kids. It had to be. Look at them, look at what they read, look at what they dress in, and just the idea that while I believed that they were innocent, there's still a part of me that's like, you know, I guess they could have done it. But I was fascinated by that case, just enveloped in it, read everything I could find, read the book, read Devil's Knot, paid attention to the the defense funds and all the websites and all that stuff. Like I, I don't believe Mamiya Jamal is or Mamiya Abu Jamal is innocent in any way. And usually I don't believe in the innocence of criminals. I don't believe in Stephen Avery. I wanted desperately to believe in Adnan Syed, and I tried, and I thought I was going to 10 episodes into Serial. And then we got to the end, and I realized, you know what? I don't believe Adnan Syed because who else could have done it? There was never a good theory outside of that to have explained how it could have been anybody else. So it was easy for me at that point, and sad. And I still want somebody to prove to me it wasn't Adnan Syed. But the Paradise Lost films brought me to the dance, and John Douglas was associated with West Memphis 3. So you bring in John Douglas, and you bring in Robert Ressler. You bring in these two guys, and you make this story about them and about how they develop criminal profiling. And then you use talented actors, and you give us the kind of dialogue we got in these longer sequences, these sit-down, question-and-answer, taped sessions. And it was just awesome. I didn't mention Cotter Smith, unit chief of the FBI. Awfully good in his work as well. Didn't get as much of him, certainly, but very, very good. But the show's just awfully good. That's just the truth. Like I said, I wish you know I had pages and pages of research in front of me to go into Ed Kemper and go into the shoe fetishes of Jerry Brudos and talk about Richard Speck in detail and all this. The bird, which was a nice touch, which actually was something he was known for in prison. And just all of these other killers and stuff. And maybe you can do that down the road, but this isn't about that. This is about why this show works. And this show works because it's good storytelling. Because it's not about the action. It's about long sequences of dialogue that are more palpable and more visceral than any scene could show. Back to Zodiac quickly as I finish up. Zodiac contains the single scariest scene I've ever seen in a movie. And it's the broad daylight murder during the picnic. There is something about that that when I watch Zodiac over again, which I've seen it several times, I really like it. When that scene comes on, I don't watch. 
I watched it in the theater and it scared the daylights out of me. And I watched that movie like three in the afternoon. Something about the idea of doing that in broad daylight as if I don't even care. I'm just going to go here and stab these people half to death with no feeling at all, not worried about anything. And I'm going to take this seemingly safe, serene place and turn it into a hellscape that I've never really been able to get over. If you have not seen Zodiac, you should, and you should watch that just to see what evil looks like. And I think now, if you've watched Mindhunter and you haven't seen Zodiac, you definitely need to watch it. But I think you're probably more apt to go back and watch it, even if you've seen it, because of what you get from Mindhunter. So Mindhunter, you know, I don't know on a scale where it's going to rank. But it's definitely right in that A-minus range, somewhere in that neighborhood for me. I just really enjoyed it. It was the right time for that kind of show for me. I was able to really kind of get into it, listen to it. I went back and listened to certain sequences over again, even before the episode finished. Like, now I want to hear that again. Make sure I picked up everything there. Very well written, and it had to be. Because if the dialogue sucked, the show would have been just awful. The dialogue is excellent. Even though there are some things that feel a little over the top, maybe the Holden Ford character devolved a little faster than we needed him to. Maybe it needed to be more gradual, and we have that moment we get in the hospital midway through second season. But we also needed to get to the end of this relationship with Debbie Mitford because eventually that needed to come to a close. Even if they reconcile, it needed to come to a close for a while because Holden Ford needs to become incredibly, even more obsessed than he already was and have almost no obstacles in his way. And also an explanation for why he's so obsessed that he doesn't really have anything on the outside that has the logical sense to keep him away from the darkness that he encounters every day. So tell me what you think about Mindhunter at jmartoutkick, jmartclone at gmail.com. That's all we're going to talk about this week. That's all I really thought about this week was just how much I enjoyed watching that series. Imperfect, sometimes bordering on implausible, but generally not. It was only implausible because some of the character motivations seemed a little forced and rushed, but it's TV. They're going to Hollywoodize it a little bit, but it was a lot more gritty than usual. I talked a little bit about Fincher versus Nolan, not as much as I want to. We'll talk more about that next week, but we did kind of get into it a bit. I think it'll be interesting if you go back and if, especially if you watch Zodiac this week, look for those yellows, like I told you, mixed with the blacks, and then go to Mindhunter and look for the blacks and the yellows there as well. It will all stand out to you. All right, that's it for me. One other quick thing. Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, Christian Bale's character, talks about Ed Gein, and he really is trying to quote Ed Kemper and doesn't realize it. But he says, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And the other part of me wonders what her head would look like on a stick. That's evil. Maybe Holden Ford's reactions are a little bit more natural than we might think. Maybe it's not as Hollywoodized. I don't know how you even walk out of a room after hearing that and are ever the same. You might not be the same after just hearing me quote it just now. But Patrick Bateman credited it to the wrong Ed. It's actually Ed Kemper that said it. Yeah, the Ed Kemper that talked about pizza and laughed and, you know, well, didn't really laugh, but sort of was very affable, it seemed like, and almost chummy with Holden Ford early. Yeah. Just so you know. What that guy did, what he prepared to do before he was caught, the preparations that he took, as an organized killer, as we find out when he's described as an organized killer there in the finale. Yeah, that guy was pretty bad. Again, he said, and I quote, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And the other part of me wonders what her head would look like on a stick. Unquote. I'm at Jmart Outkick. Be nice to each other. We'll see you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.